Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I am Sina Bazila-Hickey. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Moses Nagel's outtakes from Miko Pilad's talk at the Bethlehem Library on December 5th, which pro-Israeli protesters attempted to shut down. Then we hear from Mark Dunley about his book, Putting Out the Planetary Fire, and how the market fails to offer adequate climate 101 resources. After that, retired National Weather Service meteorologist Hugh Johnson reviews 2023 in weather. Finally, Meg Kelly interviewed John Garver of Union College about the damage that road salt has on the environment. But first, here are the headlines. The Biden administration has announced a proposal to strengthen its lead and copper rule that would require water systems to replace lead service lines within 10 years. More than 9.2 million American households connect to water through lead pipes and lead service lines. The city of Troy had started a program to remove lead service lines. The Second Circuit of Appeals ruled on Friday against portions of New York's gun law, including a provision that required conceal carry permit applications disclose their social media accounts, as well as those that ban possession on private property and in places of worship. The majority of the Concealed Carry Improvement Act remains in effect, including provisions that require an applicant to, quote, demonstrate good moral character, end quote, and disclose requirements for household and family members on an application. The closure of the 220-year-old Remington Army plant in Herkimer County, which was announced at the end of end of November, has sparked a debate over the role of New York's gun regulations in connection with the company's decision. The company said it's moving its manufacturing to its headquarters in Georgia, which is described as more gun-friendly. Key Republican lawmakers claim that the state's gun industry liability law, which allows gun makers to be sued if they, quote, knowingly or recklessly contribute, end quote, to a dangerous condition with their firearms, pushed Remington out of New York. The decision by the Public Service Commission to reject increased subsidies for new renewable energy projects that had won competitive awards from the state in the last two years has resulted in a third of those projects being canceled. The cancellations call into question the ability of the state to meet its goal of having 70% of the state's electricity produced by renewables by 2030. Some of the projects may reapply in the new competitive round of bidding launched at the end of November. Climate projects around the world are sinking because of high borrowing costs driven by interest rates. Computer chip manufacturers on Monday announced a new $10 billion research program, which will include $1 billion in state funding for a new facility at Albany's nanotechnology campus. City of Albany Police Chief Eric Hawkins said he is staying after interviewing for a top spot with the Ann Arbor, Michigan Police Department. It was the second time Hawkins has been a finalist for another job since he joined the Albany Police Force in 2018. The Gazette reports that the Schenectady City School 
district is exploring a proposal to sell the unused athletic fields behind Yates Elementary School for approximately $2 million in order for the site to be converted into an affordable housing complex. Schenectady County Democratic Party Chair Tom Bellick is among the three new candidates for the city's Civilian Police Review Board, with the nominations pending city council approval. Also nominated for the nine-person board are William Neckerman and Victoria Cooper. And that is it for the headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute your time, talents, and financial support, see the donate button at mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call us at 518-272-2390. On December 5th, the Bethlehem Neighbors for Peace, Palestinian Rights Committee, Troy Area Labor Council, and Women Against War hosted Miko Peled, at the, li- at the Bethlehem Library. Paled is the son of an Israeli general who served in the 1967 war and the grandson of the signer of the Israeli Declaration of Independence. He himself was a special force Red Beret soldier in the Israeli military until he became disenchanted with the direction he saw his country taking and became a peace and human rights activist. Many pro-Israeli activists tried to have the talk shut down and attempted to disrupt the talk itself. The excerpt of this talk begins with Peled being asked by moderator David Banks to explain what people mean when they say that Israelis' treatment of Palestinians qualifies an apartheid. Moses Nagel reports. I was born and raised in Jerusalem. I was four years old or so when East Jerusalem was occupied. And suddenly, Jerusalem became a single city. Now, from that moment on, Jerusalem had two completely separate and segregated populations, as it does today. Israeli Jews who lived in privileged parts of the city, who had resources, who had nice schools and playgrounds and so forth, and the Arabs. We didn't say Palestinians in those days. And I remember as a child seeing the vast differences between what our neighborhoods look like and what their neighborhoods look like. As Israel is claiming that it is, you know, a united city and a united city and a united city, I remember being 12, 13 years old, looking around, I didn't know the word apartheid, of course, but there was something wrong here. Completely wrong. Last year, Amnesty International came out with a report, an extended, detailed report, that concludes that the state of Israel has been engaged in the crime of apartheid since it was established. And again, I'll say this again, apartheid is designated as a crime against humanity. So three years after the Holocaust, three years after the genocide of the Jews in Europe ended, a state that claims it is a Jewish state was allowed to engage in a crime against humanity, and I'll take it one step further. Apartheid is only one of the crimes against humanity that this state was allowed to engage in. Ethnic cleansing is a crime against humanity, which Israel, the Zionists and the state of Israel has been, uh, in which the the state of Israel has been engaged. 
and genocide. <clears throat> and people say, oh my God, genocide. Well, look at the definition of these laws, compare them to what has been going on in Palestine since the State of Israel was established, and you, you, know, you figure it out. It's very easy to see. Where would uh, someone who, who identifies strongly as an atheist, where would their politics go here, and how much should they ascribe to religion specifically as an institution as part of the Palestinian-Israel conflict? That's a really good question. You know, the, the, what makes the Palestinian issue unique, in my opinion, is that it's not about religion and it's not about politics. It's a question of values. And I'll give you an example. We know that Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza you know, there was a lot of discussion about Al-Shifa Hospital as Israel, as, as it was being bombed and so forth. And the claim that the Zionists made and Israel made is that somehow under the hospital there were fighters or there was weapons or something. And therefore it was okay to do what they did. Here's where the values come in. Let's say that the devil himself lived under the hospital. The devil himself lived under the hospital. Does that justify harming a single hair of the head of a child? Yes or no? no? End of story. That's the only question that matters. Because if you say yes, the conversation is over. If anybody thinks, if anybody thinks that that scenario justifies, never mind killing, never mind burning, Never mind destroying, destroying, harming a single hair on the head of a child. If anybody who feels that that is justified, goodbye, the conversation is over. There's nothing we can say to each other anymore. It's a question of values. And on the larger issue, the question is this. You either support racism, apartheid, and violence, and supremacy, and then go ahead and support Israel, but own it. Own it. Some people think it's fine to murder, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of, of people in Gaza. Some people think it's fine to maintain the apartheid regime. Fine, own it though. Because the other side talks about justice, talks about freedom, equal rights, and talks about the possibility of peace between Israelis and Palestinians. So these are the two choices. Take out Israeli, take out Palestinian. One is a vote for racism and violence, which will never, of course, lead to peace, right? I mean, racism and violence is the opposite of peace. The other calls for justice, calls for liberation, calls for freedom, calls for equality. So it's a question of values. Find out what your values are and then own it, and that's why Someone like me, who was raised in a deeply Zionist uh, family, my grandfather's signature sits on the Israeli Declaration of Independence. I had a great uncle who was the president of the State of Israel, and my father was a general. And here I am telling you, it's about finding your values. Once you find out about the injustice, do you continue to support it? Or do you reject it? Regardless of your background, regardless of your religion, regardless of your education, regardless of your family. And that's why I'm here today saying the things that I say. My question is, we're talking about the Palestinian state or country. 
Until 1967, a war, you didn't have to ask for a Palestinian state or be identification or something from nobody because all this area was under the rule of the Jordanians. Why before 67, nobody came to the Jordanian and said, hey guys, we want our own state. Suddenly, it became a huge problem after 67. I don't accept the premise of the question that before 1967 there was no issue of a Palestinian uh, liberation. It's not true. The issue of Palestinians wanting their liberation, wanting their freedom, and wanting their country back began as soon as Palestine was taken by the Zionists in 1948. Mm -hmm. 1967 was just the second step in the Zionist taking of Palestine, kind of the, what they call the finishing the job. And then a Zionist idea came up of the two-state solution as we know it today, where uh, a Palestinian state might be limited to just these two little areas called the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. And I'll tell you a little story about that. So my father was one of the generals who planned and then executed the 1967 assault by Israel against his Arab neighbors. I think calling it a war is, 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 creates a misunderstanding. It was a, it was a brutal assault by Israel against its neighbors for the sake of taking land. And, and the generals themselves said this, my father and others said it after the war. But on the fifth day of the war, the Israeli military high command met. And at that meeting, my father stood up and said, we now have a, an opportunity to solve the Palestinian question in our, in our, to our advantage. We will offer the Palestinians a small state on a small fraction of historic Palestine. He stood up and he said this, and the other generals, his comrades, Tzachar Rabin and others, looked at him and said, what are you talking about? We just finished the job of taking our land back, and you want us to give it back to someone? And he said, what we should do now is we should give the Sinai back to the Egyptians, the Golan Heights back to the Syrians, allow the Palestinians a state in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip with East Jerusalem as their capital. We will have peace agreements with all these countries, and we can move on. And his comrades said, look, we don't, nobody wants to talk about this nonsense right now. And as, as he was saying these words, Israeli bulldozers were destroying Palestinian towns, Palestinian neighborhoods in East Jerusalem, throughout the West Bank, and building massively for Jews only in those areas. Immediately. Immediately. Areas within East Jerusalem, within the Old City, were bulldozed. Hundreds of thousands of Palestinians expelled as he was still saying these words. Israel didn't have to think, didn't take a minute even, before they began the destruction, because this was going to be a part of the state of Israel. So, the conversation about two states was later on adopted by Palestinians as, as kind of a gesture. Fine, we will give up the struggle to free all of Palestine. We will give up on the idea, which is a Palestinian idea, of a democratic state with equal rights in historic Palestine for this idea of a two-state solution. And again, Israel continued to build and build and build and make it absolutely clear that this will never happen. And then Israelis say, see, we want a Palestinian state and they won't want it. Who created a single state from the river to the sea? Not the Palestinians, Israel did. With privilege and rights for Jews only, from the river to the sea. And when Palestinians say, no, 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 but how about equality from the river to the sea? How about a democratic state with equal rights? They say, see, that's anti-Semitic. 
How dare they say equality? We want privilege. We want supremacy. That's our idea. Moses Nagel edited that recording from Miko Peled's talk at the Bethlehem Library on December 5th. Finding a lack of resources for people needing Climate 101 reference materials, Mark Dunley set out to create a book that fills that gap. Putting Out the Planetary Fire is a free online resource as well as a printed book that can be pulled from the shelf whenever a climate question arises. Mark spoke with correspondent Sinabazilahiki, that's me, about an important climate points in the book, youth activism, and if the government is taking the action it needs. Putting Out the Planetary Fire, an introduction to climate change and advocacy, is a publication that was released earlier this year on Earth Day, in fact, by Mark Dunley. Mark joins me now to tell us a little bit about this book. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Sina, for having us on. I've been wanting to talk to you about this book, and it has an interesting structure that I'm excited to tell our listeners about. First, can you introduce what your book is about? Well, it's sort of a a two-part book. I had uh, been asked, uh, I guess now about two years ago, to teach a class at Bennington College on uh, climate change and advocacy. I was surprised to not be able to find a sort of climate 101 book that provided, you know, sort of the basic introduction uh, to what climate change is about, what do we mean by solar and wind and geothermal. Um, And so after the class was over with, I said, well, I should take the information that I I uh, compiled for the class both on climate 101, the basics of, of climate, uh, but then also to put in some information about advocacy. Uh, how can particularly young people, but anybody, um, you know, be engaged in, in lobbying or, or protests or how to use, you know, art and what's the different theories of social change. So it's more of a organizing uh, handbook. Uh, it's not a book where I expect people to sit down and read cover to cover, but if they, oh, you know, I'm hearing a lot about blue hydrogen. What does that mean? And, you know, you can basically, so it's more of a reference uh, book and, uh, you know, some background. But in the introduction part, you know, I do do a little bit more of my philosophy. But since I initially intended it to be used in, in classrooms for introduction in, in college, but also maybe as, you know, junior or senior class in high school, I, I, I try to be a little bit more mainstream and a little bit less of my personal uh, perspectives. So with the experience of being in the classroom and with students, and you mentioned the portion of it that is advocacy, what are you seeing from young people? We certainly have had a wave of youth activism at the forefront of climate change it seems to have died down. What are you seeing from youth, young people these days? Well, I think the wave is a is a good uh, description of the situation. Uh, you know, probably the most you know critical person was uh, Greta Thunberg, the uh, young S- Swedish uh, activist, uh, now recently graduated from from high school. But when she started, you know, basically doing a personal protest out in front, I guess, of the the Swedish Parliament, holding a sign on on Fridays. Um, she got a lot of attention that eventually went worldwide and it really spurred uh, a lot of other young people uh, to get involved. You know, that unfortunately um, dissipated a bit uh, during COVID, like many 
um, community groups did um, because of the need to isolate and stuff like that. It's, you know, certainly it's picked back up a little bit in the last six months, but it's, um, you know, not where it needs to be. But at the same time, while there's been a little bit less of a mass, you know, movement, we're not seeing the 200,000, you know, students taken to the streets of New York City like we saw before COVID. Uh, certainly a lot of the um, younger people have continued to do very important work. Uh, the Sunrise Movement uh, has been probably one of the most impactful groups at the uh, national level, um, pushing uh, a version of the Green New Deal, pushing for a, a climate conservation core, and, and also really became active in, in elections. And I think some of the younger people, uh, because you know they're the ones that are going to have to live with the reality of, of climate change more than you know say people in the third act who are you know above 60, you know will be dying off before the worst occurs. They're a little bit more uh, desperate and and they become a little bit more militant, which is what uh, is needed to be done. So you do see groups like uh, uh, I think it's climate defiance, and, and they're doing a lot more direct action and. Um, interrupting speeches by government officials as well as those who are financed in the fossil fuel industry. So I think there's a lot of lot of uh, interest, uh, but it does go in, in ways, like for instance, one of the groups we worked with a lot here in New York, basically was representing high school students. And then the problem is high school students graduate and go on to college, and they don't always necessarily leave the same level of commitment and expertise when they move on. So it's sort of a boom and bust cycle. What are some of the most important points that you lay out in your portion of the Climate Change 101? Well, one that is a desperate situation. And it's, it's one of the things some of us fault scientists for, for not really being honest about how bleak the situation is. Their argument, which is understandable, if they were to really lay out what's uh, unfortunately likely to occur, they, they worry we create a sense of hopelessness and then paralyze people from doing anything. Um, I, I, I think their efforts to sort of understate the problem uh, has not spurred the type of action that is needed. Uh, I do think um, Extinction Rebellion now has like a science you know, scientist chapter, uh, and I think they understand they need to, you know, be a little bit more truthful and honest uh, about what's um, going on. Um, but but the fact that for many days this summer um, or this year that, you know, the world temperatures, global warming was actually above the 1.5 degree target, which is what we have agreed in Paris to try to keep global warming beneath and avoid you know, the most extreme weather. The fact that we were above that so many days, it's not permanent, it goes up and down, but it means we're getting much closer to that 1.5 degree target. And in fact, there was one day where we went above the two degree target. And as the head of the United Nations, you know, has, has repeatedly warned, we're not moving fast enough to avoid um, global warming climate uh, collapse. And, and he, he recently said that we've literally opened up the gates of hell. Um, through our inaction and that extreme weather is now here to stay. So one is a very extreme situation that, that, that requires radical action, uh, not incremental change. And then one point I always make, which sort of seems obvious, but in the real world is not, is that the single most important thing to do in terms of climate change is to stop burning fossil fuels. It's just to stop putting greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere. 
Uh, I've done a lot of work with 350.org. The reason why 350 has its name was the idea that in avoid, you know, climate class, we have to keep the carbon in the atmosphere um, below the equivalent of 350 parts per million. Well, we, we, you know, we're above, you know, 420. And yes, we need to do things like, um, you know, build more offshore wind, onshore wind, you know, solar. But if we don't cut emissions, just putting, uh, you know, renewable energy into the grid is, is not going to solve the problem. We've seen that in countries like Germany, which did a very good job in expanding uh, renewable energy, but still they saw their, you know, emissions going up. And, and then one other point I make is that we need to be clear, we have to end capitalism. Um, and, you know, actually the international... Uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the scientists sort of convened under the auspices of the United Nations. And Pope Francis have both made that point that stopping climate change is incompatible with continuing a dominant role for capitalism where which needs growth in order to continue. And also often the basic economic decisions are, are made based not on what's best for the people, but what increases the profits of the 1%. And that's an economic theory that the drive for profits will be the most efficient utilization of our economic resources. And that's why we, you know, capitalism, they would say, is a success. But capitalism has not looked adequately at its environmental impact. And, and one of the problems with our system of capitalism is that we allowed the, the rich and the powerful to sort of unload their costs onto the average consumer. And so, for instance, with fossil fuels, you know, even though, what, 8 million people worldwide a year die from um, burning uh, fossil fuels, and, you know, in New York State, um, you know, we spend, you know, $30 billion a year dealing with the health impact from burning uh, fossil fuels, and at least three, 4,000 people die annually in New York State from burning fossil fuels. None of those costs are, I was just say none, but most of those costs are not paid for by the uh, those burning fossil fuels, but it's passed on to the uh, consumer. And that results in a lot of inefficient, uh, you know, sort of decisions. We need to get to the situation where, uh, to a certain extent we saw during COVID, where we got to make decisions based on what's good for everybody, not just to, to maximize the profits of the wealthy. And I think that's one thing in the United States that the mainstream climate movement has been a little bit reluctant to, to speak so clearly about is the need in capitalism. They have begun, fortunately, to at least talk about, you know, we need the role of public power. So, for instance, here in New York State, you know, we approved allowing our state-owned utility, uh, the New York uh, Power Authority, to uh, begin to begin, hopefully begin to build renewable energy. But, you know, w we need the, the government, which is the voice of the people, to begin to say, we need to build this stuff, we need to build it fast, and, you know, we need what, what basically FDR did a bit uh, after, you know, Pearl Harbor was attacked. He took control of the American economy and said that I'm, you know, going to mobilize the country's resources in order to meet the needs of the country at this point. And, and people rallied around that. But we've not well, had speaking that. Speaking of governments, we just had COP28. Did anything positive for the climate movement come out of COP28? 
Well, there's a thing called loss and damages, which is a fancy word to, uh, you know, the industrial polluters should be helping the um, global south deal with the uh, impact from um, climate change, because uh, they're the ones that profit off of it. There was at least some recognition of that, some steps in, in the right direction. As others have said, it's you know it's pennies on the dollars in terms of what was committed, but that seems to be the one positive thing. And the other thing was that people really wanted, which is not occurring, is to get an actual commitment to phase out the use of fossil fuels. And, and that basically has been defeated by the fossil fuel industry. And the United States sort of played both sides of that game. They actually publicly were saying that they supported, you know, phasing out fossil fuels, but they did that with the caveat that they wanted to invest tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions of money into what's called carbon capture technology, which has never worked at the level it's supposed to. But the idea is they would allow fossil fuel companies to continue to, to burn but then try to capture the carbon uh, at the smokestack before it goes out and, and put it into the, into the ground. Um, so that was the United States position. But, you know, phasing out fossil fuels is, is going to definitely be the big loss. Um, former Vice President Al Gore, uh, because this is radio station, I can't use the words he used to describe how bad this was, but uh, he was quite upset. So, Mark, your book putting out the planetary fire and introduction to climate change and advocacy is available online and for purchase and print. Where can we find it? Uh, it's put out by the Green Education Legal Fund. So you go to the website, gelfny.org, or greeneducationallegalfund.ny.org. Top, there's a pull down for putting out the planetary fire. You can read it for free online. You can um, download it as a PDF. Um, and then if you, you know, want to buy a, or get a printed book, there's a way to, to get a printed copy. Thank you so much, Mark Dunley. Thank you, Sina. The website to learn more about putting out the planetary fire is linked in the description of this story on our website, mediasanctuary.org. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazila Hickey, and you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. It's now time for our weekly discussion on weather and climate with retired National Weather Service meteorologist Hugh Johnson. And this conversation will be our last in 2023, so we wanted to take a bit more time this week to reflect on the year and the weather and climate events that will define this year. Thanks for joining me, Hugh. Hello, Sina. How are you doing? <laughs> Great. So what do you think that 2023 will be remembered for regarding weather and climate? Well, for uh, the world, it's going to looks like it could be the warmest year on record that still not hasn't been cast in stone. We still got a couple of weeks left, but we are running very close to our all time warmest year. We've had many of these, of course, in the last decade. So it looks like this one will exceed those. And here in Albany, it won't be our warmest year, but it will be remembered as a warm and wet year, not our wettest year, but it was, uh, we had above normal precipitation. We're, we're already above normal for the year, over 40 inches. 
And uh, temperature-wise, yeah, we're running we're running quite a bit above normal once again for the year. And this is including or adjusted upwards of uh, of our thirty-year averages, which have gone up, and we're still above, um, averaging above normal. And can you remind us what the previously uh, or the current um, top warmest year has been on record? For us locally, well, for us it's two thousand twelve. For the world, I believe it's two thousand sixteen. So it's been a couple of years since we've, we've broken the record. That was an El Nino too. We're having an El Nino this year, not quite as strong as that, but the Earth is warming in, in, uh, even without it. But that's adding even a little bit more warmth to the uh, to the whole global picture. So you've broken down 2023 by months. Can you walk us through some of the major events of this year? Absolutely. Uh, so we'll start out in January. January turned out to be our mildest January since 1937. You heard that right. Beating out yes, with an average of 32.2. It was very cloudy. I remember it was a very cloudy month. And we did get a, a bit of snow. We had 11 inches. So we, we weren't skimping on snow. We were a little bit below normal. But most of our snow, as in most of the year uh, that winter was, was heavy and wet. It was not the real fluffy type but we did get, you know, 11 inches of the snow. We were wetter than normal and, again, very mild. Then in February, we did have a very intense cold snap in the middle of the month, right around Valentine's Day, where it dropped to 13 below zero one day. And then two days later, we were above normal. We ended up above normal February. It was drier, but we had the, the breaking of the polar vortex. And that sort of set the stage, I think, for the a lot of the year we had a very blocky atmosphere before that. We had a very progressive atmosphere with not a lot of blocking, very smooth, fast-moving systems. And then things started to change after that polar vortex split. Even though it didn't stay cold long, it really did start to a, a block. And that block was really noted in March. Even though March ended up a little bit above normal, it was our snowiest month. We had two large snowstorms, uh, one on the 4th and the 5th, one on the 14th and 15th, uh, both close to 10 inches of snow a lot more in the higher elevations and both storms caused a lot of power outages, especially the 14th, 15th one. It wasn't quite as much as the Pi Day storm, but it was in some ways more destructive because it was a much wetter snow. And it was it was a pretty wet month in March too. Then April was interesting because April, again, is still in a blocky pattern. We end up starting out in a very dry uh, uh, the first half of April and it was chilly, but then it warmed up dramatically. In fact, we had a near heat wave on the 13th and 14th, hitting 89 both those days. I actually hit 90 or higher at my thermometer. But And then it looked like it was going to be a dry spring. All of a sudden, we had a couple of cutoff lows develop in the end of April. We seem to have that a lot. That doesn't, that's not unusual. And uh, we oh, had- Remind a, us what a cutoff low is. Oh, cutoff low. Sorry, my bad. It's a low that completely breaks off from the westerlies in the upper atmosphere, kind of spins along on its own slowly, and kind of meanders and can, can cause unsettled weather for days, for quite a few days. And the season of cutoff lows it really is late April and May. That's when they most often occur. So good question. Yes. And uh, we had, again, we coupled in late April. And uh, that made up for the dryness in the beginning of the month. So we ended up above normal in April. And we started at the very beginning of May with rain. But then we went back to dry again. In fact, May was our driest month. 1.16, I think, at the airport, and it would have been drier except for the first day of the month we had a bit of rain, um, and it was uh, a little cooler than normal, even though it got warm at the end. We had a 32-degree reading 
on May 18th. Actually, I'm, I take that back. May was just slightly above. It was very close to normal. But we had a, a, a 32 degree uh, temperature on May 18th. And then we had, um, but we also end up having a great Memorial Day weekend. Of all the holiday weekends, by far, it was the nicest one. It was warm, not humid, not too hot, but 80s and, and lows in the 50s for the most part. And uh, there was no other holiday that came close to that in 2023. And then in June, the pattern started to change again. It was interesting. We, it definitely June broke the, the we had had a bunch of mild months. And then June was, was, was a bit cooler than normal, even though it started hot. And we ended up having uh, a, a bit more rain. It wasn't, we didn't get a lot of rain, but we had 18 days of, if you count traces of, of measurable rain, which is a little bit much for June. But the big legacy in June was the smoke. The Canadian forest fires were raging and we had many days of smoke and a couple of them with the air quality index went to an unhealthy range. And I know personally, there was one day it affected my lungs for about a week or two and one day where it was really, really bad. And we had a lot of that in June. So I think June that kind of messed up the June between that being kind of cool, cloudy and smoky, not the best of Junes. And then, of course, because it's the first time that uh, I really remember that kind of smoke. And so I think for many people, that will be definitely a really defining climate occurrence of 2023. Oh, I agree. Uh, we, we, we've had smoke outs a day or two, but there were many days in June. That's what made it really particularly disturbing. And then in July, we still had some smoke, but the, the big legacy was the rain. We had only 17 days of rain, actually one less than June, but Lots of big rain um, in July on the 18th, over two inches at the airport with a, a band that just set up. And I was in that band in Colony Center and it was pouring, not so much at my house, but it, right under that band. And it was actually at one point the sun was shining and it was still raining very hard. It was very, very interesting. And there was a lot of severe weather in July, not so much in Albany itself, but in surrounding areas. I'm talking to my co-workers, my former co-workers, I should say, at the weather service, they said it was a rough month, a lot of severe weather. I don't know if there were any tornadoes or not. I can't remember offhand, but there was a lot of uh, thunderstorm damage. But again, right here in the Albany area, it was more, more about just the rain, just rain, over 10 inches of rain or wettest July on record. And it was hotter than normal, two and a half degrees above normal, very humid. And then in August, we cooled off again, but we stayed kind of wet, not as bad as July. It wasn't quite as outrageous, but uh the weird thing about July, we only hit 84 for our highest temperature, which is one of the lowest high temperatures. I think it was the lowest in many, many years. I, I can't remember the exact day, to be honest with you, uh, uh, how many months ago, but it was a long time. Uh, so we, we didn't even get close to 90s. But fear not, because in September, it got really hot again. In fact, September was when we had our only official heat wave three days in a row of 90 or higher. I believe the 5th to 7th. A uh, couple, I think a couple of them, might, one of them might have been a record high, 93 or hottest temperature of the whole summer. And then it cooled off after that. It wasn't so hot after that, but we ended up a little bit above normal and precipitation was pretty close to normal. So not a bad September, though it was very summery. And then October, it got really warm again. In fact, October, I believe April and January were all top 10 warmest months. October was our, I think our third or fourth warmest it was it beat out 2021 and not that far behind 2017, which is our warmest October on record. So we've had three warm Octobers in the last 10 years, which is on the top 10 list, which goes back to 1840. So quite a bit of uh, that's pretty impressive. And uh, we hit 85 
on the fourth and I think 86 on the fifth. And with some of our warmest temperatures we've seen in October in a long time, I, I, I want to say at least a couple of decades. So, and then we hit an 80 again on the 27th for a record. I think we had like three or four record high temperatures that month. So very impressive indeed. Precipitation mm. was near normal, a lot drier to our south, but near normal. And then November got drier. We actually had a dry month in November, but it got cooler. We also had some snow in the end of the month, not a big storm, but couple inches make it about normal. And so far in December, we're running a little bit above normal. And uh, we're running, we got a good soaking rain uh, on Monday, on Sunday night, uh, over an inch. So we're above normal now for the month. And we've had a lot of days of precipitation and snowfall near normal, but we did escape a big snowstorm in the in the valley on, the, on this Monday, where uh, we just stayed a little too warm for snow to really stick. So that's basically it in, the, in a nutshell. It was wet and warm uh, 2023, as we've seen many times over and over again with our climate change. Interesting. And speaking of warming, the crossing the 1.5 degrees Celsius yes. warming mark was predicted to take place in 2050. But now there's a prediction that it might take place next year. Uh, what is your research telling you? Do you think that it's going to be warming that quickly? Maybe not quite that quickly, but a lot quicker than 2050. I think it's going to be before 2030. We actually hit it one day, I believe a couple weeks ago, there was one day that we actually hit it on one day. And I think it's going to become more frequent. I absolutely don't see any reason why it wouldn't. So I would say before 2030 anyways. So that that's it. And that is a red flag because that's we begin to really see other things, a lot of stress on the planet. That added stress, unfortunately, that will not be a good thing. And you mentioned we have passed it. So what does it mean to actually cross this line? Does it mean every day of the year is past 1.5? What actually makes us? No, no, it was one day. There was a, it, was, it was one day, and I can't remember the day. It was about two weeks ago. In, I think it was in November, even though we were a little cooler than normal. Uh, or maybe it was late October, but I think it was November that we actually, the, the world as, as a whole, Cross it for one, the first time. So it's the beginning of what's going to happen. No, we're, it's, it's going to happen on, in days here and there. And we are in El Nino. So that's helping to add a little bit of heat. So, but even so, I'd say it's going to become a more regular occurrence in the 2030s, maybe. You know, if we don't, if we don't clean our act up, if we don't can, because we're continuing to put too much CO2 in the atmosphere, that's not changing. We've talked about that several times in the past year. So you said the world did cross it for one day. So have we already met this mark or is there a different mark to actually consider us having crossed the 1.5? Well, again, you know, it was a preliminary uh, calculation. I haven't heard a confirmation, but it was already a, 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 a alarm bell that we I, I actually hit it at least temporarily. So, you know, it was, it was one day, but not for the whole year. So it means crossing that mark for a full year. Okay. I don't think that's going to happen for a few years, but it, it's on its way. <laughs> so you mentioned the El Nino. Uh, what, are this, what is the prediction? Are we going to go to a La Nina year? And how is that going to, what's the forecast? What do you, is there any prediction for what next year might look like? Okay. So the El Nino is forecast to continue well into next year. It's strong. It's robust. So we probably will see it into the spring of next year. And then that's the, the, the wild card at that point. Will it flip back to a La Nina or go to La Nada? A lot of times after a strong El Nino, we do go back to a La Nina. So I would lean with that 
that that thinking, but it, I don't know how strong it will be. That will cool try to th- cool things down a little bit. But again, we all know that, that that's part of the equation, but the CO2 is a much bigger in, in, in warming the earth up. It's really, really the thing that's been warming us up. The El Nino does add a few tents, that, no doubt about it, but uh, it's going to keep warming even with La Nina or La Nada or El Nino. <laughs> All right. So we're recording this on December 11th. What kind of a weather forecast can you give us at this time? Well, it looks like the, we had our storm. Uh, some people got snow, some didn't. It looks like the, we're going to be pretty quiet the rest of the week. Temperatures are maybe slightly below normal, but not really cold. Uh, we're going to see fairly dry conditions. There might be a few snow showers on Wednesday, and it's going to stay breezy, a little windy breezy. We'll have to watch our next storm will be late next weekend. And we've had a weekend of, of having precipitation. I think we'll finally, we might luck out and get most of the weekend without any precipitation, but we've got to watch a storm late in the weekend, the next week. It, it could be rain or snow uh, as the Southern jet stream gets active again. Right now it's going to kind of split the jet stream and some energy is going to stay south. So we're not going to get any big storms until next weekend. So we'll have to watch and see if that goes offshore and we get hit by that. The jury's still out on that one. Hugh Johnson, thank you for joining us every week. And it's been great to kind of reflect on the year of 2023. And we're looking forward to talking with you again in 2024. Absolutely. I've been very enjoyable. Thanks, Sina. You have a great uh, holiday season. (laughs) You too. Thanks so much, Hugh. All right. Bye-bye. With the snow beginning to fall, you may automatically break out the road salt to clear those roads and sidewalks. Sounds like the average start of a New York winter, but have you ever stopped to think about the greater impact this use may have on the environment? Meg Kelly interviewed John Garber, professor of geology at Union College, about this issue. Welcome to the HMM radio. And if you could just start with like an introduction, uh, who you are, what you do, that would be good. <laughs> my name is John Garver. I'm at the geology department at Union College in Schenectady. And I've spent a lot of my time, my research time, looking at the Mohawk watershed and water resources in the lower part of the Mohawk and how it affects the Hudson. Uh, but I'm interested in aquatic resources and, and how the watershed works. You had mentioned to me it was the uh, road salts affecting the municipal water supplies in uh, Scotia, New York. If you want to elaborate on the, the local story that we are looking at. So we're just coming into winter season, as you know, and there's an incredible amount of road salt that gets broadcast on all of our roads by both the state and local municipalities. And one of the problems that we're seeing is there's this regional, what we call salinization, this regional salting that's affecting the aquatic uh, resources all over the Capital District and upstate New York, and in fact, the northern tier in the United States. It's a chronic problem all over where salt is used for de-icing roads in the winter. And there's a couple of places in the Capital District where it's pretty severe. The damage is actually quite dramatic. Uh, Those places are largely where aquifers, where we tap into groundwater, and that groundwater is somehow in communication with salt that's being broadcast on the surface in the winter. Uh, And so Scotia, New York is one of those places. Um, It takes its water from what's called the Great Flats Aquifer, uh, which is an aquifer that supplies water for about 160,000 people in the Capital District. And parts of the aquifer that are a little bit further away from the Mohawk have a lot of salt in them. And that salt gets into the uh, the municipal drinking water. So a good portion of this comes from the road salt. Is there any other factor that introduces the salt into this system? 
Yeah, there there are. Look at typical wastewater. Uh, that's about 10% of the load. It's not insignificant because we use salt in our daily lives and, and it goes out through the wastewater system. And there's some industrial use as well, but but a lot of that is, is relatively limited compared to road salt. Road salt is, at least in the capital district, it's generally thought it's about 90% of the problem. Road salt is the primary thing we want to be concerned with. So what are what are some possible health impacts on uh, whether it's the environment or people or uh, I guess organisms within the overall environment? This is uh, there's there's a lot here and there's a lot going on here, uh, a lot of moving parts. And let me start with the aquatic ecosystem. We we enjoy in the capital district the Mohawk and the Hudson and all sorts of smaller tributaries, um, and that's fresh water, obviously. And and when we start to add salt to it chloride in particular is sort of the original forever chemical. The chloride gets in there and it's pretty difficult for most aquatic organisms to live with. In fact, we use chlorine in in drinking water to disinfect it. So it kills a lot of aquatic organisms, but there's also a problem with osmosis. And so they're the normal way that most aquatic organisms transfer water within their body. It gets messed up. Uh, when there's too much salt. And and so currently that level set by the EPA, um, there's a lot of talk that that protection level is actually too high and it actually needs to be lowered to about a third actually of what the what the sort of the chronic condition is. Uh, we have some streams in Schenectady, for example, where we've measured salt as about one third of uh, seawater uh, in the winter. And so this is severely contaminated and virtually no aquatic organisms can live in this sort of, uh, this sort of environment. This is called a chloride shock uh, if you have very, very high spikes of chloride in the winter. But more practically, actually, there's two other pretty important implications when the sodium and the chloride gets into our municipal water supplies. So in the capital district, about a a quarter of a million people, 250,000 people are either drinking the Mohawk or drinking the water from the Great Flats Aquifer, which is directly connected with the Mohawk. So when we have high sodium and chloride, so we take salt and it dissociates into sodium and chloride, those are the two things that we really need to worry about. And the first one, chloride, one of the main problems we're concerned with is it causes corrosion of pipes and infrastructure, et cetera. And so it can ultimately drive a corrosion of household pipes, which releases lead, and then lead gets into the drinking water, no lead is good for you at all. So there's been a couple of municipalities where the very high chloride values have increased to such a degree that actually lead is being released and people are drinking water with lead and we need to get that fixed uh, immediately. The the other problem is the two travel together, the sodium and the chloride travel together and high sodium levels can be problematic for those people who are on a sodium reduced or sodium limited diet. For those that have a severely limited diet for sodium, the uh, the recommended value is 20 milligrams per liter. And right now in the Mohawk and in the Great Fats Aquifer, there's no no single municipality that delivers water that is at 20 or less. That's all above. So we've hit this. And prior to when we used all this road salt in the 50s and the 40s, those values were down around two or three milligrams per liter. Uh, and now we're up around 30, 40, 50. So it's just been a stunning increase in the chemistry of our drinking water. So uh, you were talking about use of salt in the 40s and 50s. It's been a pretty steady increase in the amount of salt, or would you say that there has been some improvement since this topic has arisen, I guess? 
the chloride value in the Mohawk River, for example, uh, has increased 300% since the pre-salt days in the 50s. So it's, it's quite remarkable in amount of increase, and it's not slowing down at all. One of the things that we can see in the data, this is the chemistry data of the water, and this is also the municipal data for salt purchases in the state of New York, is things really went nuts starting in the early 1990s. And that meant, actually, we we're not addressing the problem. We're just making it worse. We're using more salt. One of the operators of uh, salt trucks who I talked to a couple of years ago told me that that was when they got the mandate from above that said shoulder to shoulder. Uh, no one goes home until the roads are clear shoulder to shoulder. And what that meant, they just needed to spread huge quantities of salt. And so municipal purchase, state purchases of salt, et cetera, have all gone up and, and actually are not showing any signs of decreasing. So yeah, we have a real problem on our hands. What are some things that can be done to reduce the amount of salt that we are using? I know when talking to you prior, you had mentioned a couple states that are kind of working to uh, reduce salt. What are they doing that's right that we should be doing? You know, New York is a king of salt. We mine salt here. We have the biggest salt budget or salt reduction for snow, snow removal, at least of any state in the United States. So we're really, really good at it. <laughs> and one of the reasons we're really, really good at spreading salt across the landscape is we have so much snow. But another another sort of problem that's tied into it is that salt is relatively cheap in the state of New York because uh, we have some of the biggest mines in the country uh, right here in New York State. And so we have a very efficient system for transporting and, and distributing um, salt. So the Adirondack Task Force just met and it put out its report many of us have been waiting for for a long time. This came out of the uh, Randy Preston Salt Reduction Act. And that act was to look into oversalting in the Adirondacks. And those lakes are pretty sensitive to salt because they're on sort of crystalline bedrock. There's a couple of things that fell out of that report, but frankly, I was disappointed because I really think that we need a state solution, a whole state solution to oversalting in New York state. So what that report didn't do is it didn't say, oh, at the state level, this is what we need to do. And there are some good recommendations in that report, but working in the Mohawk Valley, I can tell you that it didn't seem like there was a direct application to the things that we need here. We need, we need a salt reduction program. I mean, we need municipalities to embrace one of the primary levers that's used by states that are taking this on. And Wisconsin is a leader, Minnesota is a leader, and New Hampshire is a leader, is primarily uh, best management practices. And, and best management practices is a whole suite of ideas and techniques that are used to get both the state and municipalities to basically use less salt, to be more proactive at thinking through how they're applying salt and why they're applying salt and when they're applying salt. Another important uh, part of the salt reduction strategy is the use of salt brine. And so that would be salt that's turned into salt water and that's applied before storms. And Wisconsin has showed that can reduce the use of salt between a third and a half in, in most applications, actually. So brining is is an important thing. I know the New York State DOT is experimenting with brining. Uh, we got to make sure that if we go down the road of using salt brine, that's usually done before a storm. And it just mm -hmm. means removing the salt from the road during uh, and after a storm is much more efficient because the, the snow doesn't stick to the road. 
Um, we need to make sure that we don't use fracking fluids for that. We just use regular salt brine that's made from um, mined salt. Uh, but there are other mechanisms. But I think really looking at Wisconsin for their leadership is uh, is is important way to, for us to move forward. Um, is there uh, anything else that you feel like is important to mention that has not been mentioned yet? I think we're not going to make progress on salt reduction until we acknowledge that we have a problem. You know, most people don't really think too much about crayfish and the little things that live, the aquatic organisms that uh, that are in our watershed, but it's affecting our drinking water in, in a really significant way. And it's releasing lead and people are drinking lead and it's affecting the health of uh, residents in, in the Capital District and elsewhere in upstate New York. So this is actually a very, very serious problem. If we just look at lead, for example, the release of lead, part of that is complicated itself because we need more lead testing and then we need to make that link between corrosion of pipes caused by chloride, which is caused by road salt. And and so it's like many other things in society where it's sometimes hard to connect the dots when the dots aren't immediately next to each other. So I think acknowledging that we have a problem and addressing that problem on a statewide scale is the most important thing that we can do. Well, thank you for talking to me about this today. And hopefully this is something that can the word can be spread and we can work to reduce the amount of road salt that's used. Great. Thank you, Megan. Correspondent Meg Kelly is a student from Siena College. This is her last story for this internship. You can find more of Meg Kelly's stories at mediasanctuary.org. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazila-Hickey. We want to thank all the volunteers who made this episode possible. Many thanks to Moses Nagel, Meg Kelly, and to Hugh Johnson, who joins us every week. Mark Dunley wrote the headlines. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community, for the community, and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to your local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you, our listeners, for making all of this worthwhile.